Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is a composite of two words, authos, which means self, and entos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self or the true self. In our show, we talk to leaders who went through the process of clearly understanding their true selves. These leaders are very clear about what their core values are, and they make decisions and take actions that are always consistent with those values. Because when they do that, they're not only more satisfied, they also perform better and they are more successful. Our guests take us through their journey of self-discovery, share their successes, and are candid about their challenges. And because authentic leadership requires engaging your whole self, We also talk about how their personal passions intersect with and support their professional life. In the last episode, we talked to Erin Barra, the Director of Popular Music at Arizona State University, about the parallels between teaching a creative discipline and building a successful team, and about how to use program design to create more access. Today, we go into a different aspect of leadership with Dr. Steve Iacovelli. Steve is the founder and principal of Top Dog Learning Group, a firm that provides guidance and solutions in leadership, change management, diversity, and inclusion. He has created leadership development programs, given keynotes, and coached one-on-one at some of the most prestigious global firms and institutions. Places like Disney, IBM, Bayer, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and The Ohio State University. What I admired the most about Steve, though, is how he fully embraced his true self and used that to lead in his work. He's known and markets himself as the gay leadership dude. It's a great nickname. It is powerful, but approachable. It says, I will not back away from who I am, but I am willing to meet you on a common ground. His critically acclaimed book, Pride Leadership, Strategies for LGBTQ plus professionals to be the king or queen of their jungle, reflects this stance. It is written from an LGBTQ plus perspective, but the focus is on leadership lessons that can be applied by everyone. As a quick aside, I love this book so much that I will personally buy and send an autographed copy to the person who leaves the best review on Apple Podcast. So if you enjoyed the show, go on Apple Podcast and leave a review for a chance to win your copy. In our conversation, Steve talks about how he came to embrace his identity and over time transitioning from just being comfortable being his true self at work to actually use it to lead change. He talked about his experience working on a cruise ship with 52 different nationalities and how that gave him a different perspective on the multiple layers of diversity. We cover some of the shifts that he has seen in 20 years teaching leadership in corporate America. That led to a deep conversation on the topic of equity and the business case for diversity, inclusion and belonging and how companies can get better at that. Specifically, we talked about the broadest definition of diversity and the actual business benefits that you get from diversity and how you can have a conversation on the topic with an audience that may not be ready to receive the message. As in every episode, you will find plenty of practical advice. How to make sure your personal values line up with the corporate values of the place where you're working. How to make sure that the stated values of the company match the actual lived values. How to be your true self at work and how to find the courage to make a move if that is necessary. And most importantly, how to be a consciously inclusive leader and six competencies that go with that. As in every episode, we also close with the corporate cliche that drives Steve crazy and with some personal advice on food for the body or for the soul. And now, Dr. Steve Iacovelli, the gay leadership dude. We're going to start and, and Steve, I'm going to start with a question that I ask everybody. How do you define authenticity? It's, it's a great question, Dino. And, and first of all, thank you for, for letting me uh, kind of have a chat with your folks. And I'm really excited to be here. Um, to me, authenticity is really being your true self within, you can say the workplace, but it's really anywhere. Uh, it, it's, it's not having to put up barriers. It's not having to uh, watch speech or, or language. It's just being your true authentic self uh, within those around you. And so within your personal and professional journey, what were like a, a couple of key moments when you think back, when you started being explicitly about 
being your authentic self, what that meant to you, and then how that translated in the way that you showed up in the workplace or in the in the world. Yeah. So before I actually started Top Dog Learning Group, um, my own consulting practice about 12 or so years ago, I, of course, was out in the real world, if you will. And uh, I graduated from undergraduate in 1993. Uh, from you know, small school in Pennsylvania. And then I, I started making my way into the, the quote unquote real world, the corporate world. But just at that same time is when I figured out I was gay. And um, so I'm, I, you know, it was kind of late to the game for some folks and early for others, but I was just entering the workforce and figuring out my true authentic self. And, and so I, I went into my first real job, you know, it was like this, this nice software company, mid nineties. I was just starting out kind of at that lower ranks in, in this pretty cool company, but in the days of DOS to date myself. And um, I remember having to figure out, do I share who my authentic self is with the, with my new coworkers? And it was such a weird and new experience for me, but having grown up that, you know, you should always be proud of who you are, regardless of what that looks like. My parents didn't tell me that within the framework of being LGBTQ blue, but um, I was able to have those individual conversations in that workplace in circa 1994. And from that point forward, I'm like, why would I ever hide who I am? That's, it's one facet of who I am, but it's part of my overall authenticity. And so from that point forward, up until now, I've always shared when it's appropriate. Hey, oh, by the way, I have a husband of 23 years and that's just who I am. And that's one facet of how I look at the world. You know, you made the transition from just being who you were to actually being proactive about equity and 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 the, the role that equity has in the in the workplace. So tell me a little bit about that transition and, and sort of what that entailed. When I started getting into, you know, I left that software company, started doing some other stuff, went, went to, went back and got my master's degree and, and then started working back in fortune, mainly fortune 500 companies or even, even small or even bigger. I mean, and, um, you know, I, I, when I worked at Disney, I fell into the world of leadership development. Uh, and then it's also the concepts of diversity and inclusion and, and kind of how they interact. And I was working for, uh, the cruise line. So this is the early two thousands. So the cruise Disney cruise line was only two ships, but there's 52 nationalities on board. And so there's, I was thrust in this gorgeous place of understanding as this uh, white cisgendered gay American who only lived abroad once. And it was not for that long. And it was for England. So I'm like, ah, they speak the language, which of course is not true. I mean, they do, but it's very different cultural. But anyway, that was my only real experience being abroad. And so here I am now working with 51 other nationalities. And I was really like, thrown into this cold water of, oh my goodness, you really have to think about the world in a very, very different way if you're going to be successful. And it was one of the best experiences for me to, to open up, to look at being more inclusive. And then as I progressed in my career and I started really diving deeper into the intersection of leadership and authenticity and diversity and inclusion and belonging. And that's really how my, my latest book came about, Pride Leadership, and really focusing on not just uh, authenticity and leadership uh, success for the LGBTQ plus community, but really for anyone who wants to be an awesome ally for any other that's out there. So what led you to actually focus on sort of like the training and learning world and within that world, how, because, you know, that's a world that if you're training people, you're actually forced to be even more explicit about what leadership is. How do you communicate it? You know, or what, how do you set expectations? So tell me a little bit how about like your personal journey through that articulation of our own, le own leadership. And then, you know, what are sort of some of the steps that you took into thinking about how you communicate it to people? So I, I, it's, it actually started um, in my master's degree, which is actually in educational policy leadership development. So I was getting all the the, the book smarts, if you will, on what what real leadership is supposed to mean. But yeah, that was nice. I mean, it, it's great to know the models. It's another thing to take those models and apply them. And so that's kind of what I did uh, after getting my, that master's degree and started playing around with leading teams, um, both big and small, and and seeing how it impacted. And I, I felt that this was kind of my jam. This is my, my opportunity to really give back to people to help them be more successful successful, which, which just was such an awesome feeling. I'm, a, I'm from a family of teachers. And so this is my way to actually be a teacher, but not be a teacher. So um, I was kind of doing that in the real world for, you know, like I said, for Disney. I worked uh, at IBM for several years as an IBM consultant, uh, doing change management, but there was always that leadership thread through it. And it's, what, it's there where I started realizing that good leadership doesn't matter what your job is. Uh, you really need to think about whether you're an individual contributor, whether you have a team of, of two or 20 or 90 or above, uh, 
you really have to start thinking about how you're interacting with other humans, how you're communicating, how you're showing empathy, all these great competencies that truly make a leader more effective. And, and that's kind of where I started spinning my focus, if you will, trying to help folks really see leadership's important, regardless of if you're an army of one or an army of a thousand, and what can you do to be more effective in that leadership journey that you're on. Doing this as a consultant for several organizations, I'm sure you've been into very different organizations and they're very different environments and face different leadership challenges. So what are some of tough leadership challenges that some of your clients may have faced and what are some of the ways that you have helped them navigate them? Yeah, well, in Pride Leadership, I, I talk about what I found to be the top six leadership competencies that really impact a leader today. And the very first one I tackle is authenticity, which is why this is a perfect kind of marriage here, Dino. Uh, but, I, but I put that as the number one because that is one of the things I've seen as being a big either challenge or or. Per- or propellant or whatever's the right word uh, for people in the workplace. And so an authentic leader within the workplace, uh, they know who they are. So it's understanding your own personal value system and what that looks like. And you know, there's easy exercises if you Google finding my, my values or it's also in my book and all that stuff. You, you find your, your top five-ish. And so these are the ones that kind of drive you to do what you do. Then you start doing some analysis on the workplace. And this is what I coach a lot of people on when we're working with clients. You know, most organizations at this point have their stated organizational values. Now, I say stated, emphasized for a reason, because they're not always the real ones that are lived out. And and that could be even just in a department or a a geographical office or whatever that looks like. And so I, I encourage leaders to say, know your personal values know the stated, and then know the the lived values. And hopefully they're in alignment with the organization. Sometimes they're not. But once you have that, then you can start to see how are you fitting in from that values perspective. And, and that's usually one of the biggest hurdles I see leaders have is they'll say things like, I just don't feel like I fit in. I'm like, okay, let's dissect that. What does that really mean? And nine times out of 10, it comes down to either my values aren't aligned with the organizations or they're not aligned with my leaders or others around me. And that's what kind of what's causing that that icky feeling that they might have. And that, of course, leads to performance um, uh, negative. So really understanding where your authenticity is in the workplace and kind of going from there. If you're a leader and you're trying to diagnose whether the live values match up to the stated values, what are some of the things that you may be looking for? So it's a lot of different things, actually. Um, um, first, you you look at you know, what's stated and you know, look at the break room wall or the website or whatever's the right spot. And then you really start to, to do some analysis. In my, my book, I call it um, drone perspective, kind of like you get into your little drone, you zoom up above the situation and say, what's going on here? You know, is this really happening? I, I, I use a personal example. Eons ago, I was working for another software company and one of their values was we honor work-life balance. I'm like, score. I could totally get behind that. And so I'm a morning person. And so this was a smaller company and I would go in and I was usually the first one in the office about seven ish o'clock. I'd beat the traffic. I'm starting the coffee. I'm replying to my emails and people would roll in about eight, eight thirty. Well, I figured, well, I was there about seven, seven fifteen, about five ish. I was ready to go. And so I'd get in my car and this happened when I first started this company for a couple weeks. And again, you know, we honor work-life value, uh, balance. I'm like score. So uh, finally, one of my peers came up to me and said, Steve, you're leaving too early. I'm like, what? She's like, you're leaving too early. All of our bosses don't leave before six. So we at our level should not leave before six as well. And I'm like, but value on the wall. And you know, I'm here early. I'm the one starting the coffee. So there is that disconnect. And so I think what leaders can do is when they find themselves in a similar situation is, is really start to, to analyze it and pick it apart and maybe have that leadership courage, which is another com, uh, you know, uh, competency I, I value very highly. Um, maybe have those conversations with folks. So back in time, if I could, I would have had that conversation with my leader and said, Hey, I'm going to have some courage right now and share that, you know, I know the norm is supposed to be this, but I don't think that's fair. And let's have a conversation about that. And I think there's, that's where leaders have that opportunity to really start to move culture uh, and, and also get better alignment with who they are to be more successful in the workplace. So what's, what's really interesting in this example, you know, we think of leadership as a very top down competency, but this example speaks to maybe like a bottom up situation potentially. So if we're expanding this, not just for, you know, people that we think of leaders in the traditional sense of the terms, but like, you know, the opportunity for anybody to exercise some leadership, what what are some of the, the tips that, you know, you can, you know, if you're like 
looking at your organization, looking at values? What what are some of the, the tips that you could share for somebody? The number one strategy I share with, with any leader, regardless of level you're, that you're at, is your job is to cultivate the garden. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, most people think like, uh, you know, oh, leadership, like you said, you know, is top down. Like it's the general at the top telling the rest of the troops to do something. That's not how it should be working, especially in a Western workplace. Now, some organizations are very, very mechanistic approach. You know, first responders, military, they need to have the generals tell them that the, the boots on the ground, what to do. Totally fine. But in most of the people who are listening here, your workplaces probably aren't that. And so as a leader, we're gardeners. We cultivate the garden. We we set the, the context, as I say, in pride leadership. You know, that's the, um, what are the rules and responsibilities? What's our ultimate goal as a team? What um, is our communication strategy? How do we know uh, we work together and provide that feedback ongoing. So you set the culture and then you let the people grow as they will. And that's hard for people to do. Farmers don't go up to their crops and say, grow. No, that's not their their job. They, they set the to- soil and the sun and all that good stuff. And then the plants do what they do best. And I think smart leaders do that. And whether that's, you know, you're, you're, you're hoeing your garden and you're the only seed in there, or you're using that influence to kind of help the gardeners above you in that food chain. That's the ultimate goal. I think of great leadership is knowing it's not about you set that environment and, and that's an environment of being open and honest, um, valuing trust, having those hard conversations, fostering relationships, shaping the organizational culture. Like those are the focus areas that we as good leaders can really emphasize versus the, you know, I need you to crank up 20 more widgets kind of getting by the end of the week stuff. I, I love the gardener metaphor. So I'm curious, you've had kind of like a front row seat across many organization through, I think, a time when the concept of leadership and the concept of value has really transformed within corporate America. You know, what what are some of the differences that you're observing in some moments when you're like, oh, that is a significant shift? The first one that pops in my mind, of course, it's top of mind, but I think one of the top three in, in to answer your question, Dito, is the Black Lives Matter movement of uh, this past summer and, and really seeing this flashpoint of people understanding that our black brothers and black and brown brothers and sisters have not had it fair. I mean, regardless of where you're looking, and this says as you know, a, a, a white cisgendered gay man, um, I understand that. And, and I have understood that, but I, I was happy um, the silver lining on the horrible things that have happened is that the conversation is still happening. Now, what's interesting to me is as I start to work with newer organizations, newer workplaces who are striving to be more consciously inclusive is the phrase that I use. I'm asking them, what are they still doing to help our, our black and brown brothers and sisters and their employees you know, to, to look at that fight for true equity and justice? But I think that's one of the biggest flashpoints and hopefully a, a massive turning point. Um, time will tell. Um, whether that happens or not, but I, I do see uh, overall cultural implications, and I'm hoping that they sustain themselves and keep the ball and the conversation moving uh, to kind of move into that more equitable and, and just uh, kind of society. So, since we, since you you brought up this topic, what are some of the challenges and some of the practical steps that you know leaders that want to improve the equity situation in their companies can take? Self-awareness is always the number one answer. Um, you know, I've, I've had some really interesting conversations, both on podcasts as well as offline. And you can tell when people ask the questions about um, very pointedly that they don't have a whole lot of self-awareness of kind of the systemic um, disenfranchisement that's been happening for way too long. Uh, I, I had a gentleman's um say on a podcast not too long ago, we're being interviewed and he's like, and he basically asked a question to the extent of, well, don't all lives matter? And I'm like, oh, you just don't get it. And and I think that's the opportunity where um, we can ask that not just of ourselves, but of those around us, you know, what are we doing to educate ourselves to truly understand? I will never understand what it's like to be uh, a black man or a a, a woman in our society. Of course not. But what am I doing as a white cisgender gay dude to try to empathize as best I can and also to support and use my voice to help build that uh, equitable and just society. And so, you know, it's it's reading, it's asking. And, and number one answer, it's listening. And not just to paraphrase Stephen Covey, listen to respond, but truly listen to understand what 
people are saying about their experience, whatever, insert the you know, inequitable state uh, situation here. There's a lot more research that is coming from traditional places that also points to the key economic benefits. Like McKinsey is publishing, you know, cross national and cross industry study that show actually the economic impact of diversity. How do you bring that into the conversation with your clients? It's an awesome question. And uh, stating the business case for diversity, inclusion, and and belonging is, is kind of how I phrase it. Um, I actually do it in all my workshops. Uh, I, and I when, when I could go on site or when my team and I could go on site or now we're doing virtual. But regardless of which ones, you know some people are there because they're really excited. And there's others who are in the sessions because they're voluntold. You know, their boss said it's a great idea or it's somebody's initiative and they're like, oh, rats. And you can read the room a little bit when, when you see that. So I, I always start the conversation um, with kind of like if, if you picture a continuum, kind of a, a three-point continuum. On, on one side, the reason an organization, a workplace, a business focuses on on diversity, inclusion, and belonging is because it's the right thing to do. It makes the world better. We all feel good. We bring our best selves to work. You do more output. Yes, that's awesome. It's the right thing to do for the world. On the completely opposite end of that same continuum is the punitive. We do it because we have to. We're being forced to. There's rules, regulations, laws, etc. that force us to be more inclusive. Meh. But that's it. That's that's the truth. And then in the middle is the business case for diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And so I, I always phrase it to folks, you might be here like I am because I want the world to be more awesome and we are inclusive and feel good for everybody. You might be here because, well, I was voluntold, but I don't want to you know, get us into trouble by doing something I shouldn't. I said, but let's think about the things in the middle because I would guarantee that every single person in this room, virtual or otherwise, wants your organization to succeed. Yes or no? Well, of course it does. Steve, that keeps my job. I, yes, great. So we want to focus on the business case and you know what's going to happen. You're slowly going to get to that. Hey, this makes the world better too. Awesome sauce. And so I, I think when you approach it from that perspective, from that, that, that middle, you're already going to have people on either end, but that middle one is that, that, you know, proverbial bell curve. And that really allows people to kind of get on board more quickly than sitting there, you know, voluntary hands crossed in the back, not really listening to the conversation at hand. Going back to that middle point, what are some of the practical competitive advantages and benefits for a business from having a more equitable and a more diverse? Uh, you know, you, you cite the Kinsey's, many of the Kinsey uh, research, which is kind of some of the best stuff out there. Um, and I think, I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong, I think they do it every two years or something to that effect is, is when they do the work. I don't know how often it is, but what I have seen is a lot of like beat pieces of it. Yep. I'm interested, like, I'm just going to put you back in a room where you have a mix of people. There's a couple of people who are super enthusiastic and there's a big chunk of the people who are there because the boss told them that they have to be there. Right. And they are participating. But you know that there's a chance that half of them, the second you leave the company, may not implement it. And so like, OK, let me give you some quick pointers, like places or areas where more diversity and more equity actually benefit? What are some of the three points that you roll off in a situation like that? So the, the first would be diversity of thought and that you could apply that to pretty much any workplace team or scenario. I, I use an example. There was a um, client I was working with and we were having this conversation and they said, you know, it's funny because um, and, and they they produced a lot of different things. But one of the things that they, they created was like like kind of use the term tchotchkes, you know, little tiny gifts and things of that nature. And, and they said, you know, it's funny that you say that because we, we did a um, kind of a, a demographics quick study of the people on the project team and um, realized, and one of the people on the team was left-handed. And one of the things that we were creating was a mug, but the mug and the way they put the decal was always for a right-handed person because everybody else in the room was right-handed. And, and this woman said, I'm left-handed. And so if I use it that way, it's not going to be the same experience. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. That's a little thing. But just think of the profit share that they could have lost by selling it to all the left-handed people in their market marketplace. And you can kind of start to pick through that with really any demographic. And I love the um, the definition of diversity, which is by Garden Schwartz and Rowe, uh, two awesome women in, in LA. And they wrote, um, uh, they created the five layers of diversity. And so what it does is, is, and I won't go too deep into it, but it really helps us think about 
about the concept of, of diverse humans beyond what most folks go toward, which is um, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, physical ability. Uh, you know, it, and those are very, very, very important. Of course they are. But there's other ways to also consider diversity that's maybe a little less impactful, but doesn't still diminish what makes us all unique humans. The handedness is, is just one of those. And so I think you, you start to think of it from that perspective, then you start to take a step back and look at leadership. Um, you know, McKinsey and, and several other studies show that if you have diverse boards of directors, uh, C-suites, your profits are better. And so you start sharing those types of conversations during the business case to be like, you know, you don't want to miss out on market share by you always putting, for example, images of families and they're always the, the white 20 uh, something, you know, two heterosexual couples with the 2.5 kids. Yes, that is a family in our modern society, but there's a heck of a lot of others. And so if you don't consider those in your marketing and what you're showing on your recruitment stuff, then you're not, people aren't seeing themselves and they're less apt to go with you. And therefore you're also disenfranchising some really awesome talent by not being as open and inclusive as you could be. That's great. Um, I'm curious, as we have this whole conversation around diversity, you made a very conscious and deliberate choice, not to just be who you are, but to lead from who you are. You actually called yourself the gay leadership dude. So um, what was exciting? What was scary about taking that step? Take me a little bit through the journey and some of the key moments. So when when uh, my friend Ruth and I started Top Dog Learning Group, and we and her last name is Bond, she's literally British, so she's very British and bald, you know. And my last name Iacovelli, is very Americanized Italian, and so most people who do what we do, they they throw their names together and they're like, you know, Bond and Iacovelli and Associates. Like, meh, that's boring. So we like dogs, so that's kind of how Top Dog started. I didn't even own a dog at the time, but I'm like, I like dogs, that's kind of cool. So that was the brand that we started, and that's you know, we work with, like I said, more Fortune 500 larger not-for-profit organizations. Flash forward to um, 2018. I was at a conference and I'm in between sessions. I'm kind of sorting business cards. There's a woman next to me sorting her business cards before we go in. She's like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, top dog, diversity, inclusion, uh, change management, blah, blah, blah. How about you? She's like, I'm a publisher. I'm like, you know, there's a leadership book in my head that needs to come out. She's like, well, let's get that book out. And flash forward, Jen is my publisher now. But as we were going down the path of publishing and I was just sketching out the, the ideas in the book, I started looking around at uh, other leaders around me, specifically, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of volunteer work in LGBTQ organizations, uh, social justice, that kind of stuff. And so I started just like observing my fellow queer leaders out in, in the workplace. And then uh, if you remember the Sex in the City uh, show back in the 90s or whatever, Carrie's always typing the, the main character. She's a writer. And she's like, I couldn't help but wonder is how she always started her column. And I it kind of hit my head. I'm like, I can't help but wonder, is there something about being a queer leader that gives you an opportunity to exercise your leadership muscles, maybe slightly differently or, or more readily available than my, my straight brothers and sisters? And side note, if you're listening, uh, my book does not say that my straight friends cannot be awesome leaders. That is not the case. However, um, there is things, so you, we go back to authenticity. Well, I know personally that every time I am in a situation, whether it be a client, a new coworker, whatever, I have an option to be my authentic self or to hide who I truly am. Um, you know, to, to change the pronouns of what did you do this weekend with Steve? Oh, well, me and my friend Chris went out, you know, gender neutral kind of stuff. So, it's always that opportunity that I keep having to, to make that choice to say, oh, my husband, Richard, of 23, 24 years and blah, blah, blah. Well, that actually, if you look at the research, the Brene Browns and all the cool research stuff out there about authenticity, that's the kind of behavior they're saying you should do as a leader, period, regardless of your, your sexual orientation. So that's kind of how the book Pride Leadership started and how I filtered it through that lens. So then as I'm kind of in the midst writing the book, I realized that I kind of needed to own it. And, um, and so, you know, Top Dog is my company brand, which is me and my pack, if you will, my Top Doggers, my consultants, but my personal brand is the gay leadership dude, trademark. I'm the only one in the world now, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of where I, I kind of hang my personal hat and, and what I'm doing. Now, what I typically do is co-brand anything I do now, you know, Top Dog Learning Group and the gay leadership dude proudly present, blah, 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 blah. And, and it, it does a couple things. One, it's a really big, massive red flag that, ooh, um, this is a diverse, you know, or embracing diversity differences kind of organization. Yay. And then two, it allows me to kind of open up some different conversations because you know people are either into dogs or they're like, oh, I know gay people where I am a gay person or whatever that looks like. And so it just gives that, that opportunity to really humanize the story that we're bringing to any client that we have out there. I imagine that given that you said earlier that you're by no 
way or shape saying that straight people cannot be great leader, that maybe there's angles in your book that talk about a lesson that people in any orientation can take from pride leadership. What are some of the two or three key lessons that well, one of the chapters, and and this is really my massive focus. I, I've been doing a lot of keynotes. I was supposed to do a whole bunch of <laughs> keynotes this year, live and in person. Wow, wow, wow! But we turned them virtual, which is fun. Um, but all those are around being a consciously inclusive leader, and that's actually like chapter three of my book. Because my my whole hypothesis is that if you focus on these six competencies that I identify, which are authenticity, courage. Uh, empathy, effective communication, relationships, and shaping culture, you're going to be just awesomely inclusive and really successful. And it's not just if you're a queer person, that's for anyone. And what's been really cool is, um, quick story, when I first got the feedback from my very first editor, Heather the editor, which I'm going to call her. And um, so I'm, I'm in a coffee shop in downtown Orlando where I live, and uh, I'm like nervous. It's like a, a kid going to the principal's office. I'm like, oh, Heather's calling me with feedback. She's the only other person in the universe to read this. And so she calls me, and I'm like pacing back and forth. I'm on the phone. And she's like, okay, Steve, before I say anything, I have to tell you something. I'm like, oh, no. She's like, I am a white, cisgendered, heterosexual woman. I'm like, okay. She's like, I am not your target audience, as you've stated, for this book? I'm like, yes. She's like, this is the book I needed for my MBA program. I'm like, what? And she said, it's just approachable and it's fun. And it's, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an academic. I have a doctorate. I'm a nerd. However, um, I cite all the stuff that I talk about in, say, in empathy on like Goldman and emotional intelligence and all sorts of fun stuff, but then take my own spin and experience on it. And she's like, this is solid research, but it's fun and cheeky dad humor, which makes it memorable. I'm like, yes. So, and I've, I've gotten actually a lot of feedback from my straight uh, allies who read it. They're like, I love your gay jokes. I love your straight jokes. It's funny. And and so I think, uh, you know, the, the concepts are universal. Um, Heather said, you have to de-gay the book. I'm like, nope, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but what it does is it allows you as an ally to experience kind of a little bit of a different world, but still through a lens of stuff that you'll totally relate to. And, and that's where I think that the big value is. Um, we've since created an eight-week online training program. Uh, we were doing that last year, COVID, yay, online anyway. Um, and we have like, it's like 50-50 allies and queer leaders going through it now, and which is fun. And so you, you, the concepts are universal. It's just approaching it from a different way. I know um, as, as a kind of parallel example, years ago, I worked for a, a large manufacturing company and I was um, part of the Women's ER, Employee Resource Group, ERG. And I know I tell people not in the workplace that they're like, why are you in the women's group? I'm like, because I want to be an awesome ally as best I can. And so now I'm being exposed to what what my my female coworkers are going through, and I can try to use my male voice to amplify their need. And I said, it's the same idea with pride leadership. And they're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. So um, it's not just for queers anymore. It's actually pretty funny. So I actually, there are two things that you said in this conversation that I want to follow up on. The first thing is, I really liked how just natural and confident you were and we're like you got to decay the group the book nope because i think that's one of one of the biggest challenges in authenticity is it's sort of like a multiple step process the first one is figuring out who you are and how you want to show up and the second is owning the parts that may be challenging or that may cause you to lose an opportunity or to be shunned by people in a very natural way i have to assume that you didn't just decide, okay, I'm coming out. And then the next day you were super confident in every interaction with everybody you were with. For somebody who is looking more and more to say, okay, I'm just going to show up at work as I really am. What are some of the steps and the moments when, and maybe some in the moments when things didn't go right because you were not willing to negotiate that? Can you share some sort of some steps, some moments that maybe for somebody that right now is making the journey, whether it is a journey to own their identity, their race, their gender, their how they identify, or even just you know somebody who wants to be more artistic in a number job or whatever? Like, what what are some of the moments that you look for to kind of own your identity and? be comfortable in it. So, you know, and it's a great question. I'm, I'm, if you're watching the visuals, I'm showing actually my, my um, mouse pad, which has my six competencies. And, and I state blatantly in the book and in the training programs that I, we do that while there's six listed, they are so gorgeously intertwined, it's ridiculous. And I, I bring this up to answer your question, you know, because I, you know, um, authenticity and courage are the first two. That's for a reason. And and I think, you know, to be authentic is to be courageous and, and to own it and to be yourself. I think about 
um, my trans brothers and sisters who are being their authentic self in the workplace. That's that's massively brave. Uh, I think about people who um, you know are have a uh, a differing ability and and they're they're trying to not share that within the workplace, but still trying to function. And I, I'm thinking about someone very close to me who is dyslexic and um, often has me proofread some of their writings. And I said, you know, this wouldn't be a big deal if, if you were okay with sharing or disclaiming. And, and, and they were like, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't want to put myself in that vulnerable situation. And so I think, and then that's okay. I mean, that, that's your comfort level. You don't have to disclose everything to everybody, but I think you have to find the first step is where's your comfort level in owning that. And that's going to change over time, over context or over whatever that looks like. I know people who are my age and I just turned 50 this year who are still in the closet at work. And I'm like, uh, you live with a dude and you've lived with him for like 28 years. You think your company doesn't know, oh, by the way, you have a really super high um, military uh, clearance. They know everything, <laughs> but that's a prerogative and that's fine. And, and so you know, you have to find your comfort level. I mean, only 50, about 50% of, of LGBT people are actually out at work still. To this day, 2020, almost 2021. So that's that's not uncommon. Um, so then the reason is, well, why? And and ask yourself why you're not being your authentic self. Why aren't you sharing your differing ability? Why aren't you sharing your uh, your gender identity or your sexual orientation or your religion or whatever that looks like? And, and so you know that's those are the first two questions, and that's kind of all that stuff you you, you reflect in your head. And then I, I often say that people that you know once you've kind of gotten to that resolution where you know where you're at, we all tend to have that work wife, work husband, work spouse. That's kind of our confidant, our trusted buddy who knows the culture, the context, the politics, the dynamics that are within the workplace, and then start to maybe have those conversations with that trusted advisor and, and just kind of get their take and get their feel and see kind of where their perspective is. And I think those are probably the two things. And I, I jumped down then to, um, you know, the concept I talk about in my chapter on, on shaping culture, then once you know your authentic self, you have a choice as a leader to either shape the culture to be more in line with what you would aspire it to be, or the way it's supposed to be given the stated values and all that good stuff we talked about earlier, or maybe it's not the place for you. And 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 I, I say this with, with the biggest love and respect and passion for leaders. I've had many a conversation in our coaching sessions where people are like, I just don't fit in. I'm like, why are you there? Well, because it's a good job. I'm like, oh, you're an indentured servant to insert the name of the company here. No, I'm not. I said, well, then what is stopping you? You know, you can get a job. And I think, you know, bringing it to the context of COVID, um, when we're on the other side of all this, it's going to be such a different workplace and work work environment now. Um, I've always been virtual for the last, you know, since 2008. I go to clients and then I work from home. Zoom has been my jam for forever. It's not a big deal. My doctorate's actually in instructional technology and distance education, so I better know it and be pretty comfortable here. But what I think is going to happen on the other side of this is if you're a rock star in what you do, where you live won't matter. And so if I'm at a workplace where I don't feel it's the right values or aligned with my authentic self, you can get out. You can virtually jump ship and go somewhere else, most likely, depending on your role, of course. And I think that's going to be the exciting part about what happens on the other side of COVID is that employers better get their stuff together if they want to keep the best talent. And and great talent knows that, you know what, you're a rock star and you could probably find like a free agent athlete and find your best fit where you can kind of make the most impact aligned with who you are. Yeah. So that is actually, I think, a really important point that you brought out there is the notion that at some point, I'm going to put some words into your mouth, but I think at some point, the confidence to be more authentic comes with being forced to make a choice and being willing to take a loss or give up something for what you truly believe in. And that's something that I think most people need to negotiate themselves. But I'm wondering if you, in your experience, as somebody who I'm sure at some point in your life or career, because nobody gets to our age without having had to walk out from somewhere where for some reason it's like, nope, not working for me. You know, in, in one of those moments, how did you build up the courage? Because you talk about courage, mm -hmm. you know, and courage, it's one of the skills that people naturally assume that you have or don't have. But I am guessing that somewhere in your book, you're talking about how to build up courage. So I'm interested in 
that? There, it's it's a great question, and to to jump to my conclusion, uh, and then I'll fill it in. Is is a, a quote that I've still yet to find who has uh, already uh, originally said it, but it's to be brave enough to suck at something new. And, and I, I just love that quote because it's so true. Um, you know, find something that you don't, you have zero skill in and try it. Um, whether that be something you know personal, um, whether it be something like in the workplace, delegation. Uh, most people despise delegating a task to someone. Why? When you boil it all down and peel back all those little onion layers, it's about trust. And, and, you know, someone uh, asked me in an interview, um, you know, what's the secret of leadership? I'm like, I can tell you the secret of leadership. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah. It's, I could take my 356-page book, put it to one page, to one word, and that's trust. Best, authentic, effective leaders have trust with those around them. And that's not just direct reports. That's everyone 360. And so if we can do things to instill trust in folks, that's fantastic. Um, and that's kind of the delegation thing. But if, if we kind of just try something new, put ourselves in those hard situations, um, you know, by, by me joining the Women's Employee Resource Group, that was by design. And that was really weird at first. And, and zero disrespect meant to my, my female uh, folks listening here, but I'm a dude. I don't know your experience. And to be thrown into that that situation and really be exposed to all the challenges and heartaches that my, my female coworkers were facing that I had no clue about, that was really weird and icky for this, this dude to hear. I'm so glad I did it because now I have that heightened sense of awareness that I can be in a situation and, and I've done this to clients. Someone say, hey, gals, I'm like, that's really not appropriate. Um, or they'll, they'll say one of those just slightly derogatory silly statements that kind of comes out in that unconscious way. And I can now be that voice to kind of defend as an ally, my female coworkers or, or colleagues in the room. And I, I like that. So be brave enough to suck at something new, I think is like a great mantra in order to foster and build that kind of leadership courage. So I'm glad that you brought back the example of you joining the women group, because that was, remember like, Five minutes ago, I said, oh, you, you said two things that I have question on that I want to go deeper on. So this is the second one, which I think is really important. On one hand, equity and justice for minorities just by sheer math cannot be achieved without participation from the majority. Yes. On the other hand, I have a guess that you may go there in your response to this question. As a majority, if you're really advancing the cause of a minority... Part of it may be giving up the leadership role in that conversation. So if you're thinking about practically for a straight, cisgender, white man who wants to really be a good ally and help whatever minority, you know, however you design that that need more equity, what are some of the steps and the approach that they can take? To start, Dina, you bring up a great point. You know, sometimes it's it's just the the sheer volume of numbers that are singing from the same songbook that gets heard. Sometimes it's that one soloist who just has this voice that resonates differently, and then they're heard. And so I think that's kind of where the allyship comes into play. You know, I mean, uh, I, I believe women make up fifty one percent of the world population. Okay, so by the first point, that's the majority. So why do we still have these issues? Why are is is there still a pay gap? Well, that's because you know our system, from my perspective, is is just not built to foster women in leadership power. And, and we can and we only have you know so much time get into unconscious bias and all that kind of stuff that goes on there. Um, but I, I think that what we can do is as, you know, and I'll use as a, as a white male, um, I absolutely pave the way for uh, maybe my, my female colleagues or my female colleagues of color to step up to the plate and be like, you know what, it's your time to take the mic now and have that comfort, that courage to sit back and allow them that opportunity to really take the stage. Now, as with any, we're going back to delegation now, as with delegation, we have to have trust and comfort with the person taking that mic or taking the wheel. And that's where we as leaders need to come in uh, and really have that that bravery to let go and you know, to pull Elsa, let it go, and, um, and really allow, allow whoever is leading 
to lead the way they should be leading and not to micromanage and and, and nitpick and, and try to you know correct from the backseat kind of thing. Have that opportunity to really take a step back and say, you know what, this may not go where you want it to go, but it's going to go. Uh, and you've just given the reins over to that person. And I think that's a, a smart, brave leader, regardless of who you are, can really embrace that that kind of mentality. Great. Um, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm going to move us to sort of the final um, part of the of the conversation. As I, I, I told you in the past, I like to ask my guests, what is a business cliche phrase of expression that drives you crazy and why? <laughs> um and I know we talked about this before and there's like 20 that pop into my head. Um, I think the one that aside from some of the phrases that I've been hearing in 2020, like, you know, the new normal, which is the one that I don't like. Um, but the one that I've always historically had an issue with was paradigm shift. And I, that's, I, I don't know why that's nails on a chalkboard for Steve, but, but it, it really is. And I, and I think it's, um, I, hey, I'm a consultant. I've been a consultant for a long time. And that just always reminds me of one of those insincere consultancy things to say that really has no teeth or no meaning to it. Like, hey, we need a paradigm shift. And like, oh, gosh, <laughs> what do you really mean by that? Oh, that's a great phrase. Um, and then finally, um, I always ask, like to ask my guests to share something that they use to nourish themselves. I call it food for your body or food for your soul. So you can choose one of the two or both. So if there's a dish or a drink that you really love, or if you want to go down the food for the soul side, is there a book, a piece of music, a piece of art, a movie, a painting, or something that really inspires you? I I, I love art, but um, I'm a, I'm a really massive music fan. And so what I've learned to do to really kind of help balance, especially in these weird or wonderful times, is to combine the physical with the emotional. And so um, I you know, have my home gym. I, I miss going to the gym. Um, it was my kind of way to you know, really start my day in a good way to like tick a box off. Um, I especially miss the stair climber, which a lot of people hate that machine, but it's my favorite one for some reason. I've had knee surgery and I found it just really kind of lubes up the joints in a great way. But I've also found that I can either put on a, a great, um, I, I do like classical music. I do like um, jazz music, especially kind of two genres. I'll put one of those on and just kind of do my step and step and step and thing. Well, in these COVID times, I had to figure out how to accomplish that. So we have, a, um, you know, we live in, in Florida. We do not have a pool in our house. Our yard's a little bit smaller, but we do have a hot tub and we have two steps that go up to that. So now I do my steps. It, it's a little weird if someone were to watch me just going up and down two little steps for like 40 minutes a day. But that's kind of how I, I really kind of cleanse my my soul as well as my body in these weird times. That's fabulous. And is there a uh, either is there a specific piece of music that classical or jazz that comes to mind that you really love? It's it's not a, a, a specific, but anything by Ella Fitzgerald is just my jam. I, I've named my first canine child Ella uh, for after Ella Fitzgerald. So anything uh, Ella Fitzgerald is kind of like one of my favorite things to listen to in the world. Well, Steve, that's an excellent note to finish this conversation on. It was great meeting you. You too, dear. And thank you so much for being such a great and insightful guest. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review, tell a friend or more, subscribe, and post about it in social media. You can find Dr. Steve Iacovelli and Top Dog Learning on the website topdoglearning.biz, spelled T-O-P-D-O-G-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G dot B-I-Z. There you will find information on both their services and also where to find the book Pride Leadership. As it is tradition, at the end of the credits, I'm going to share a song by my wife, Susan Catania, one of the best Americana singer-songwriters in Boston. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number 4, so al4ep.com, and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Dino Catania. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicholas Catania, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is a song by Susan. I'm going to go deep into her catalog with a song from her pop country past. It's called Let the Music Deliver Me. Enjoy. Mm -hmm.
each line like a page from my diary. Love's been kinda hard on me. Get my feet to the fire. Jumps.